Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Karima Talwakapur. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Well, we have a great pod for you today. We're talking about the bombshell report from the Canadian Forces on the state of Ontario's long-term care homes, a quick look at Ontario's new COVID-19 testing strategy, and finally, a check-in on our climate change commitment and how COVID may actually be impacting those moving forward. Uh, but first, another uh, week of this. How's everyone doing? I graduated today. I had, you know, a three-hour online ceremony, which was playing in the background. Oh, shit. Really? Cool. A, a congratulations. Yeah. And B, did it have the same uh, the same sort of pomp and circumstance as uh, graduating from Harvard on Zoom? Uh, no, definitely not. It was interesting. I mean, you could see they got some uh, they got some pretty decent speakers to come out. Yo-Yo Ma played us. You know, it was like he was in my living room, right? He played us on, so that was interesting. Conan was there. Um, yeah, there were some there were some neat kind of things that were that were part of the the thing, but it definitely didn't replace actually being there in, in, you know, Harvard Yard or whatever it is. We were actually planning a whole trip with my kids to go down there and uh, and spend a week um, in Cambridge. So kind of missed out on that, but hopefully we'll get a chance to do it in the fall. But anyway, for now, I'm done school. So happy about that. Well, congratulations. That is extremely exciting. Yeah, congrats, Alvin. I will say I also had a significant accomplishment this week. I've been playing a space strategy game called Neptune's Pride, and I won it this week. It took me about a month to outwit all of my opponents. And, you know, maybe not as cool as graduating from uh, a Harvard program, but, uh, you know, on on some spectrum of cool, I think. I like to think. Congratulations, Chris. Well, let's dive in to uh, maybe a dark and frustrating topic to start with from going from maybe happy news to a dark and frustrating topic. Long-term care homes have been at the heart of the COVID-19 outbreak in Canada uh, since the beginning. We've mentioned a couple of times over 80% of all COVID-19 fatalities have been in long-term care homes. That's over 3,000 people who have died in Canada and over 1,500 of those people who have died are in Ontario. So it is just a ridiculous tragedy. On Tuesday, a report from the Canadian Armed Forces, who of course have been called in to help out in long-term care homes, was released in Ontario's long-term care sector specifically after they were called for assistance amid staff shortages. Residents, uh, like I won't, we won't go too much. I won't go too much in the intro into the details, but the report is just horrific. Reports of residents left in soiled diapers, cockroach infestations, forced feedings, directing staff not to use supplies. Uh, these are, it's just really gut wrenching even to read the news reporting about this report. Uh, so much so that Premier Ford called reading the report the hardest thing he's had to do as premier and reiterated his plan for an independent review, but has not gone so far as to say we should be doing a public inquiry. Uh, He also indicated, as he has a lot these days, that new funding would have to come from the federal government. In terms of the federal response, Trudeau has said the report is gut-wrenching and he's taking nothing off the table, but that the federal government will respect provincial jurisdiction because, of course, long-term care homes are the responsibility of the province. The report has absolutely consumed Queen's Park media this week, with government government, uh, again coming under fire for their dramatic reduction in long-term care inspections, which uh, is a move 
of the Ford government that sits squarely on their shoulders. A CBC investigation found that while most of Ontario's 600 homes received an uh, annual unannounced comprehensive inspection from 2015 to 2017, in 2018, this number dropped to half and only nine inspections were done in 2019. So this is an upsetting story. It is a a difficult story to talk about, but what do we make of this after sort of a week of reporting? And where do you think the government should go from here? Chris, you're right that this is a very, very dark subject to be talking about. And I think that, A, it's important to remember that lots of people that are listening or are reading about these about this report and news reports about what's happening in long-term care facilities have loved ones that are still staying and living in these long-term care facilities or may have lost someone as a result of COVID or other reasons during this pandemic. And so it, it makes it that much harder to talk about and hear stories about what's going on. I think that when we talk about the horrors of what's happening in our long, long-term care uh, facilities, we sort of talk about different parts of our healthcare system as different parts and not actually as one piece of a broader puzzle. So we've we've segmented different parts of our public health system. And in this case, with long-term care, uh, we've got a a significant proportion of long-term care being privately funded. And um, it's at this time when people are really raising some questions around privatization of some parts of our healthcare system over decades and what that reveals right now around different ways in which public institutions versus private institutions manage care. But I also think it's revealing to see that uh, the government immediately after the report came out kind of said, you know, we know that something has got to change, but we can't make it public. That was one of the, that was the first statement coming out of the government once the the report was tabled. And so I think if the question is, if we're not willing to have a conversation around how we eventually fund and backstop different parts of our healthcare system now, especially long-term care, when are we going to do it? Over the past 15 years, there when we've sort of examined our aging demographic and what the care needs of an aging demographic uh, would be, there's been a lot of focus on home care versus long-term care so that our elderly are not in in hospital. But in the midst of that, uh, we've sort of have forgotten this piece, this really important piece that has been important for a large majority or a big part of our population for a long time. And as we see our population aging even more, that demographic shift occurring even not faster, but but we're at the the front end of it. All of this means that we need investments in care support for our elderly populations, but also others that, that depend on these types of care institutions. So all this to say, I think that, um, that it's really easy to think about funding issues immediately and not think about, again, the decades of policy decisions that have led us here. But also, at this, by the same token, provinces have and the provincial government has made decisions that have limited its revenue-generating capacity. And now, at this very time when we could use some of those revenues, we're pointing to different orders of government to help pay for services that are within the province's jurisdiction. 
Greenman, I think you brought up some interesting points. I mean, why are we okay with long-term care centers not being under the same scrutiny as the rest of our healthcare system, as being part of our healthcare system, as needing the same amount of attention, care, and funding as the rest of our healthcare system? I think it's interesting that the premier said that the buck stops with him, and I think it definitely should. And he continues to blame previous governments for the decline. And I'm not saying that there wasn't decline over the years, but most advocates in the sector have been pointing fingers at the PCs for essentially eliminating inspections, handcuffing inspectors and enforcement agents, and leaving long-term care to essentially the wild west of private for-profiteering of our elders. And I think we need to start asking if we shouldn't be considering moving away from for-profit centers. I saw that Stephen DeLuca was asked the other day about whether or not uh, the liberals would support, you know, eliminating for-profit long-term care facilities. And he said it's certainly on the table, which surprised me a little bit. You know, I think you're right. I don't know why we have a healthcare system that we would, you know, go to the wall over uh, to keep it public and to make sure that uh, governments take care of it, but essentially turn a blind eye to the fact that long-term care facilities are private. For the most of them are private. Some of them are not-for-profits and some of them are being run by municipalities, but we've essentially passed the buck on this. And with an aging population, this has been something that we knew was coming for decades and uh, haven't done enough to, to deal with. Yeah. And I, I think the politics of this issue are, I, I think, interesting and fraught for a lot of the reasons that you guys have uh, mentioned. I mean, pr- prior to this report coming out, there was already, I think, an increased level of scrutiny and public awareness of long-term homes just because the issues with just the pandemic appeared to be so much more acute uh, within them. And I mean, the Toronto Star released an independent investigation that showed that for those for-profit homes, you're equally as likely to get COVID uh, in a private or public home, but you're more likely to uh, die in a private home. So that just the prevalence of uh, cases and deaths and the severity of the issue in that sector, I think brought people's attention. And now this is kind of like put gasoline on the issue. But one of the things that I find frustrating about it is we are kind of reverting back to some of the worst politics that happen that can happen when you, we have very public damning information about how our society treats vulnerable people. We have just today, the premier is blaming OPSU for being unwilling to send uh, inspectors in. And that's why there weren't a certain level of number of inspections. And so we have some union blaming. We have the federal and provincial government having sort of who's going to pay for the solution here. You know, I'm, I'm glad that there's going to be uh, an investigation. Um, I wish it were an inquiry, but the 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 first signs in the response are I I've found extremely frustrating. I think we don't collect enough provincial revenue to spend on social services in this province and the conditions of indigenous communities, foster homes, uh, long-term care homes, shelters, homeless shelters have been a problem for decades. So I think. This obviously shines a big bright light on part of that, and maybe some good will come of that. But I just think there's a reason for that. It's um, largely rooted in conservative politics, and so for Ford, its response to be, you know, we can't afford anything more, so we'll have to turn to the federal government for what is clearly provincial jurisdiction. Tells me there's actually been no lesson learned here. They're an issue mitigation moment. And, and so um, I don't have a lot of faith that anything real is going to come of this. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I hope we're wrong about that, but I, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, we'll learn, I guess, about the process and the timeline for this investigation. But yeah, this has been something that has been an issue for a really, really, really long time. We live in a society that has for some time been okay with vulnerable and marginalized people living in dreadful conditions across the board. One of the things that I was curious about just on this theme of like the, vol- uh, you know, we still have 40 boil, boil water advisories in communities in uh, First Nations across Ontario. Uh we have i live across the street from a uh, homeless shelter that regularly experiences basic hygiene and health problems and respite centers uh you know have annually report problems with just like sanitation bathrooms that kind of thing and many homeless people avoid them for that reason i don't know i i think that there is a larger issue here i completely agree with you guys that there's a larger issue here um and i hope that that is eventually the thing that we we grapple with because it it, it infects more than just this issue yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting because yeah, the city of Toronto released the um, regional data of where and who is getting COVID around the city of Toronto, and it's definitely more marginalized populations. Uh, the data that's showing um, immigrant communities and, and uh, people with lower uh, socioeconomic status essentially being affected and hit uh, hit pretty hard by uh, COVID in the city of Toronto, and mostly in in areas like uh, Scarborough and Etobicoke, and also unsurprisingly, some of those uh, worst case performers of uh, long term care facilities are in those communities as well. So that's where some of these people have to send their their loved ones to go to. Yeah, I think Alvin, you're you're right in that what recent or new data from Toronto Public Health is showing is that especially by postal code that the map of COVID cases or region of the city looks awfully similar to different maps that show inequalities in the city, whether it's by different types of illnesses like uh, the work that David Holchansky has done on rates of on rates of heart disease by postal code, or if it's by um, transit deserts, or if it's by level of income, we know that there's a, that COVID's not the great equalizer that many people have been talking about. But as Miles Korak said, it's the great revealer. And so for us to know who's actually getting sick, we need to know, A, people who are feeling the symptoms of COVID need to be able to get tested. Big developments this week um, have been made in the testing capacity of the province. After falling well below the testing capacity of about 20,000 tests for more than a week and conceding that they were sending mixed messages, Premier Ford announced on Sunday that anyone could go get a COVID test if they wanted one. This seems to have the intended effect of the number of tests back up to 15,000 by Tuesday and up at seven at the 17,000 mark again as of Wednesday. Ontario has also announced that they've completed testing residents and staff in long-term care and intend to roll out a broader testing strategy next week for asymptomatic people in high-risk groups, such as first responders, taxi drivers, and factory workers. Before we sort of go on to whether what we make of this development and whether it'll help, um, Chris wanted to go to you and and ask uh, what your insights are um, based off of both empirical insights and personal insight. <laughs> um, it was a very confusing weekend. Um, 
Uh, for listeners, for context, I, for the last two, two weeks, have been feeling sort of light symptoms, dry cough, sore throat. I was getting worried about it. So I, I was one of the people on Sunday who uh, went to get uh, th- this test after hearing the premier sort of muse about it for a couple of days and encourage people uh, to go out and get tested. I mean, just like it is unquestionably a good thing that anyone can go get a test now. The premier saying it should be so, uh, I was un- I previously and most people I knew were under the impression that, you know, you needed to have your doctor or a doctor tell you to go get a test to be able to access one. So I was sort of sitting in my apartment worried that I might have something serious and it's like, you know, can I even leave the doors of my apartment safely without putting other people in my building at risk? So I was like just really confused as to what to do. And I felt like I had a responsibility to go if I could. Uh, I went and I got a COVID test. I will say sort of two things about that experience. Number one is that the testing center itself was like a really, really excellent, well-organized, safe seeming experience. If any of uh, one listening has ever felt a sniffle or a sore throat in this experience, like it's extremely nerve wracking. It's scary. We hear tons of scary news reports about COVID-19 and what it is like. And it's nerve wracking to just like show up to a place where there might be a lot of people potentially with symptoms. Totally felt completely safe when I was there. They have like people rigidly enforcing the socially distant social distance in the lineups. Um, so like if you even step towards someone else, somebody's like, no, 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 get back. You get a new mask. You get hand sanitizer every couple of seconds. Like you never touch the same object as anyone else. Everything is wiped down basically in eyesight every uh, after every person goes through. So it's like, it is fine. I will say it sucks having a nose stick up your nose, but you know, it's it's fine. Uh, and it's just nice to be able to ask people questions. Like the staff there were extremely knowledgeable about how to like manage symptoms, when to get worried, what you can do, what you can't do if you're self-isolating. So that was the good part. The good part was just everything about showing up uh, and the staff who were working there and the organization. Everything that was not good was like everything before I actually walked into the door. I went because the premier said it was okay to go. It was weird. Like, you know, on Friday, the premier said more people should go get tested, but the public health authorities were saying different things. I decided, hey, I'm just going to go to Toronto Public Health, the website of the testing center. And the website testing center hadn't been updated since April 30th. So it said, if I actually went, I wouldn't get a test still. Um, I'd found a number of recent news articles where Dr. Eileen Davila was saying, you know, they aren't encouraging people to go out and get tests yet. Multiple places, including Government of Ontario websites, saying that I should consult my family doctor before seeking one out. So I, I sort of, after I'd made the decision, after Doug Ford had said, I read all these things from like recent days and was like second guessing my decision to go. And I eventually just reached out to a doctor friend of mine, Dr. Casey Park, who's been on the show. And he was like, no, you can just show up. It's it's fine. You've been able to do that actually for a little while. Kind of unfortunate because, you know, people are going to be nervous about showing up and getting testing. It's uh, I'm really glad to see the numbers increasing um, because unless we have kind of one simple message from all public health resources that's saying like if you have and that message basically being if you have symptoms, go get a test, people like aren't going to do it. I think it's gotten better as the week has gone on, but certainly when I was doing it, it was uh, quite confusing to figure out like if I should just walk in the door or I should talk to my doctor or um, so we're at a point where if you're sick, get tested. It's safe. It's easy. But um, yeah, you. it took me a, a second to get there and they appear to be cleaning up their act. I'm glad they are. Uh, I think they need to make it much more simpler than it is. Wait, did you say whether or not you have COVID? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Uh, I don't have COVID. 
Ta-da! Yay! Yay! I got my results. Uh, yeah, two days after the test, uh, it was really speedy. The login process on the government website was was fine. It's an easy interface. However, I have one complaint. It's that when my test results were still in process, the website did not actually tell me that. I logged in and it said, your test results have been processed, but we can't tell them to you. So call your, call your GP. I was like, Okay, so you uh, and when I called my uh, doctor, he looked it up and was like, "Oh no, they just haven't done it yet." So I don't know if that was just a glitch for the website for me or if other people have found that, but um, yeah, it's not a not not a perfect system, and I was definitely confused uh, going through it. One of the things I've been looking at recently was positive test rate and how the WHO is saying that jurisdictions need to start aiming for a less than 10% positive test rate so that people can understand and know that governments are testing the right people. You actually don't want a very high positive test rate because that means you're only testing symptomatic people who are generally in hospital or in care already, which means you're missing a lot of the people who uh, might be asymptomatic or have only mild symptoms. You actually want a uh, large uh, breadth of testing going around, which it seems like we're sort of playing catch up now at this point. Now, our percentage is not that bad. It's actually okay. But I think um, when you compare it to other provinces, other provinces have been doing a, a, a quite a bit better on that, especially British Columbia. So I think Ontario is finally going to start seeing those numbers get better and seeing the positive test percentage go down uh, with more people like you, Chris, taking the test and uh, and uh, contributing to that, which is a positive effect. Yeah. And it really, I think, is a story of like, you know, they they made sure they tested everyone in the long term care sector, which is like really important. And that was driving our test numbers for a while. And I think there was the, the, that like precipitous drop we saw, which has now climbed back up a little bit. Which I was I was just kind of surprised they weren't more prepared for this moment. Like you know you're going to need to roll out testing more broadly. And I actually saw uh, there was a an article on on Monday this week about uh, the Toronto Public Toronto uh, Medical Officers of Health expressed concern that people were waiting with symptoms for like up to five days before deciding to go get a test, and that that was a danger. But like, no shit, like most people think they can't show up to get a test. People need to know that the service is available for them to avail themselves of it. Um, and that is new, like as of this week. So I'm glad we're there, but like, and I'm, I'm glad there is concern, but I'm just a little like, if we knew this moment was coming, you really need a communication strategy to like break through and like tell people it's it's going to be okay and show up. I was kind of like, I was one of those people that waited five days and it was because I thought I couldn't get a test. Mm-hmm. And Chris, you're you know actively engaged in in the debates and political debates, health information. Like you know what's yeah. going on, right? And so imagine for a person or a family where they're not maybe that actively engaged in discussions around when to get tested or not to get tested, and maybe English isn't your first language, and so accessing clear communications becomes even that much more important when you know, traditional ways of communicating any type of public information is challenging 
at the best of times. And so in, in the middle of a pandemic, we we have to be not only more sophisticated about how we communicate to different populations and to different groups, but also think more pro- proactively about where we are, not only in the epidemic curve, but also where we are in people's understanding of the illness in itself so that they feel empowered to go get the test, to ask questions. Maybe they don't have a COVID-related illness, but they're actually feeling other symptoms. And we're seeing a lot of reporting right now where visits to the ER have have gone down significantly. And it's not that people are suddenly, you know, feeling better. It's just that they're delaying going to the hospital uh, for a considerable period of time. And so by the time they do show up in ER, um, the the their prognosis is much more dire than it would have been if they had shown up earlier. All this to say, I think I'm a really happy that you're okay, and and that that the anxiety that you experience, and I can just imagine in sort of thinking you might have it, and then having to sort of assess whether you should go get a test or not, and what's the safest way of getting to the test, right, or to the test center. Not all um, not all sites are walkable for people, and so they might have to take transit, might have to take a taxi. So these are all so clear communications around what to do in those circumstances yeah. is needed. Yeah. And one just sort of final point on this is I think that like a really common thread in all sort of like COVID-19 public behavior communications is I think there needs to be more simple instruction and less sort of like concern and disappointment. One of the things that I like I was actually kind of frustrated with the Toronto Public Health concern and disappointment tone with like people not showing up and getting tested because most people at least that I know want to do the right thing and I mean even if we're talking about you know the people who are taking risks that are beyond the pale like the all the people that showed up in Trinity Bellwood that we're all really mad at. We've had weeks of news reports saying that oh, being outside is okay or like speculating that being outside is okay and um, you know, it's nicer weather and, you know, people's behavior is not complicated. It's pretty predictable. And we had a pretty good rates of com- public compliance with public health orders when the message was just stay at home. Now that it's more complicated and the demands that we are placing on people are more complicated and getting greater, like w- the effort to communicate clearly and empathetically with people, I think, is um, it deserves it, de- it deserves a lot of thought. The press conferences are great. The expert advice is great. I hope they're hiring some like super smart communications people uh, to package this in a way that really punches through to people's lives. Because yeah, you know, to your point, Karima, like not everyone is listening to podcasts about this every week, and you know they're going about their lives, and like they like they are just as in danger, and we are relying on them just as much as the people who you know are seeking this information out. Hiring smart people seems to be step one in most cases. All right, I'm going to move us on to our last topic. It is rare, but there are sometimes in this world things that happen that are non-COVID related. And so each spring, the federal government releases new data on Canada's greenhouse gas emissions to track progress on our global commitments to keep temperature rises below two degrees. And this year, Ontario was in the bad books for making up two thirds of Canada's total emissions increase. Uh, Not so great for us there. Not COVID related, but we are uh, still talking about sad news. Uh, When tracking began in 1990, Ontario emitted 
180 megatons of greenhouse gases, and it rose throughout the 90s, peaking at 208 megatons in the year 2000. Since then, it has declined steadily, primarily due to eliminating coal power, a decline in manufacturing, and the use of more fuel-efficient vehicles. Uh, And we're sitting at around 155 megatons in 2017. So the new data uh, found in that, uh, which is for 2018, found that our emissions jumped again to 165 megatons, up uh, to where we were in 2014. That is the equivalent of uh, a jump of one third the reduction that came from banning coal. So it is tempting. And the first thing uh, certainly that I thought of was Ford canceling cap and trade in June 2018. But the increases actually came from a variety of sources. Almost half came from building heat due in part to a colder winter, uh, 25% from transportation with consumer preferences increasingly shifting to larger SUVs, uh, and increases in heavy diesel trucking amid a growing economy. Uh, and finally, 20% from electricity generation with a hotter summer generating, requiring more gas plant generation for all that air conditioning that keeps us cool. This is obviously bad news for our climate change goals. The wind government made a commitment to a 37% reduction from 1990 levels by 2030, or about 115 megatons. The Ford government has revised that to 30%, or 125 megatons. Uh, but either way, jumping 10 megatons in the increase is going in the wrong direction. However, uh, on the positive side, there's been uh, more research that has suggested a global decline. There's been actually a global decline of greenhouse gas emissions of 17% compared to last year amid the economic shutdown of COVID-19. Uh, and while this is likely to be temporary and it has not calculated the impact of Canada separately, uh, it may actually represent the biggest annual drop in emissions since World War II. So <laughs> is it possible to process more than one existential crisis at a time? Where do we think we're at in terms of our climate goals? And do we think that maybe there's a moment here to uh, recalibrate the direction in which we're going? 100%, Chris. I think that this is a crisis and it's also an opportunity to rebuild. There's certainly space for how we come out of current pandemic in terms of businesses, manufacturing. You know, that that's great and uh, and people should be thinking about that. I hate the argument that a lot of PCs use that, uh, you know, we're a, a small population. We, we don't contribute that much, really, whereas we're in the top 10 per capita contributions of GHGs uh, in around the world. We're also in the top 10 emitters as, uh, as a country. You know, just because the rest of the world is doing better uh, should not be an excuse for uh, the Ford government to ignore their lack of commitment, I guess, to fight climate change. And I definitely blame them canceling cap and trade, the uh, EV subsidy. We have, I bought a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle from Windsor, Ontario, built right here in this province. And they saw a 70% decline year over year in EV sales of the Chrysler Pacifica, a minivan built in Ontario for Ontario families that previous Ontario Liberal governments had encouraged them to build here and renovate and hire people. We've now lost 1,500 jobs because uh, because of the decline in sales. We're seeing a lot of people, homeowners, uh, not able to renovate anymore because the home renovation rebate has been taken away for greening your house and improving your insulation. They've canceled the FIT program. They pulled out charging stations that already existed at GO stations. I mean, how stupid do you need to be to take out infrastructure that was already there when we're trying to create uh, a more sustainable infrastructure across the province to support where even the auto companies are acknowledging 
that's where it's going. Every every major auto company is committed to moving towards electric in the, over the next uh, few decades. And we have a government right now that's burying their head in the sand. There's just so much that they've been doing that they, I think, are sort of getting away with right now because COVID is uh, taking precedence. But we need to remember that we are a significant contributor of this um, around the world and we need to set the right example. And we can use this as an opportunity to get ahead and lead the way uh, in green energy and in technology around the world and show that this is how to do it. This is not the government to do that right now. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, one of the things that the COVID crisis has shown us is in some ways really encouraging, which is we can, as a globe, take collective, huge, big action that changes society um, with, you know, results. And so I think like we can apply that hopefully to the other existential crisis. Um, I think the the more discouraging thing it showed has shown is that individual action is never going to be enough. We basically stopped all non-essential transportation, you know, driving, flying, and lots of economic activity, not all, but like tons of economic activity. A 17% decline in emissions is obviously great, but like we need to get to net zero. So like a 100% emission reduction, right? And so it shows how much of the emissions are locked into how the how we you know heat our homes, how we produce energy, how we make physical things, and that is going to take systemic government policy led change to to get at and to tackle. While of course continuing to work at individual level actions, which you know obviously this crisis shown can make an impact, a real impact, but it's never going to be enough to close the gap. So I hope that all the people who, you know, in oil and gas and government, frankly, that were saying, well, how many times have you flown in the last year as kind of this like shaming um, mechanism to defer climate action can you sort of not have that tool in their toolbox anymore? Yeah. Yeah, no, all, all, all of the above. Uh, I will say one thing I've loved about this 17% greenhouse gas emissions worldwide i mean aside from just loving greenhouse gas emission reduction is the uh these nature is healing memes that have uh been everywhere have you guys seen those yes yes they're like um but on yeah but on a on a more serious note like you're absolutely right there and there is a ton of opportunity i mean we will face a need to rebuild our economy from the most severe contraction that we have seen since the Great Depression. And, and, you know, unless this, it is looking increasingly likely that this V-shaped recovery is less and less likely. And if we are in for something prolonged, you know, something big and massive is what governments will need to do. And there, for those who are interested in pushing for something in that space, massive building retrofit like the kinds of big transformative things that we're going to need to do we'll need to employ people to do and like that is an opportunity as much as it is a existential challenge so going back to the original question about how we process more than one existential crisis at a time for people in progressive politics i think that pushing for a green economic recovery is a real opportunity to make that a centerpiece of future governments here here And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please feel free to share your thoughts with us on our episodes on Twitter. You can find us at Ontario Loud. Follow and share our latest pods. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Alexi White, Garima Talwar Kapoor, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support team, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. And of course, all our supporters on Patreon. 
which you can also be if you visit us at ontarioloud.ca. That's it for today. Join us next week as we dive back into healthcare with former Deputy Minister Dr. Bob Bell and frontline worker and fellow podcaster Tyler Watt. See you then. Stay safe.